Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the generic podcast. We talk about everything horror, science fiction, and sometimes fantasy. episode of the generic podcast where we talk about everything horror science fiction and sometimes fantasy and today on the show we have alan baxter it's a pleasure to have you on the show how are you doing today man i'm good i'm well thanks thanks for having me out of all the stuff that you you've got going on here you know you've got all these books you know you're doing all this other stuff within the the horror community how did you get your start? Like, if you just bring us back to the beginning a little bit. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I, I, it's not a question I can really answer too easily. It's because um, it's, it's sort of something that's grown organically over a long period of time. Um, I've, all, I've always written stories. I've always been keen to be a storyteller. Throughout my teens, um, I would do a lot of role-playing games, a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of stuff. I'd frequently be the DM because then I would get to tell the story, you know, and sort of lead the party. And that was always sort of a creative outlet. Um, I went traveling all around the world for a couple of years um, in my mid-20s. And it was when, while I was doing that that I decided, even though I've been writing stories and involved in story sort of since forever that was when I decided to take it seriously and started actively writing and go okay this time I'm going to finish a novel and this time I'm going to aim to actually look what's involved in getting published and all that sort of stuff um, and that started that sort of slow process then um, and when I was when I was first writing it was a uh, my early books are a lot of really sort of dark urban fantasy a lot of magic and monsters and mythology and stuff like that um, I seem to have been leaning more towards horror as time's gone on, although there's still always this sort of the weird and the supernatural and all that kind of stuff that goes on in, in the work that I do. But it just kind of, yeah, it's just sort of organically grown as a process since then. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point with a lot of the different, like, like dark sci-fi and even just like sci-fi in general and then like fantasy. Um, a lot of the times, even when people are reading those genres, there's a lot of horror elements that are, are woven into it, right? Because mm. a lot of times it doesn't even have to be what most people presume is is horror right when you bring up horror a lot of the times people think either of like stephen king or like just slasher films right, right. <laughs> yeah, a it's lot a great them... misconception horror, horror is a very broad church i mean, <laughs> I mean richard Kedry was on twitter the other day and he was saying ah oh, settle an argument for me um event horizon is it science fiction or is it horror um and my response to that was well it's both that's like asking if a banana is fruit or is it food it's like well yes because <laughs> like and, and you know horror and comedy I, I never met a genre I didn't like I tend to I mash a lot of stuff in like there's a most of what I write is is dark it's got a lot of horror elements but it usually involves crime mystery elements of fantasy I've written some science fiction as well and um but crime I mean, sorry, horror and um, comedy in particular are not really genres 
unto themselves. They're like a spice that you can add to any genre. And if you add a lot, it becomes overwhelmingly horror. You add a little bit, it becomes kind of, oh, that's science fiction or whatever, but it's a bit dark and twisted kind of thing. It's like, well, it's all horror. This is a thing. Horror is a very broad church. And, you know, you can just go all in and lean hard into all the horror elements and that becomes the overriding vibe. But it's still quite often like it would be a thriller with a lot of horror or a fantasy with a lot of horror or, or whatever, you know. And this is the thing. It's, yeah, I as soon as we start trying to narrow down genre definitions, it starts to become kind of frustrating and, and ultimately sort of pointless in a way. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, some of the bookstores that we have here uh, in Austin, Texas, there's some of them have like some pretty decent horror sections, but what's interesting, and it's like what you're saying, um, and it's something that I've always found that's you know sort of kind of frustrating. It's like you get, so it's like they have this horror section, right? And then you go to it and it's mostly stuff that would either, you know, like you have your, your king and your coons, right? Those are going to be like the center aisles, you know? And then you have on the other side, you have like indie authors who like are either up and coming or, you know, no one, no one has really heard of them yet. And then you have all this other kind of like mishmash of like, oh, a customer ordered this. So I'll put this up there and we'll order a couple of copies of this or whatever. But then when you walk around the rest of the store, you know, you find stuff in, your, in, in like a mystery and you're like, but this is actually a thriller. And this is written by this author who also wrote this. And this is like, sometimes it's like a second you know, or third book that you find in, in a series. And it's like, well, those two are horror, but it's not with this one. And so, yeah, the genres is, is as far as trying to place them has always been a very, um, I wouldn't say odd, but more so kind of like a difficult thing um, to really pin down. Uh, but as far as all of the different like uh, fantastical elements and everything, would you say that most of that came um, to your writing from playing D and D, or were there other kind of factors involved in that, like a kind of or anything? Hey, can you hear me? I can. I can. Okay. Sorry. I just, oh no uh, worries. No worries. My internet is um, a little unstable sometimes, and it drops out for a few seconds at a time. And every once in a while, for some reason, it just like drops out for a minute or a couple of minutes at a time hopefully that won't happen again <laughs> no worries I, th I think we're i think com communally like if we could if we call the world a, a whole you know communal colony right um we're at a, i think we're at a weird point in technology where um kind of like all the, if all the internet companies got together and didn't worry too much about charging everybody right because internet should just be a thing now right there shouldn't be any company yeah. for anybody so maybe maybe no. in the next 40 or 50 years you know we'll just <laughs> maybe one, one thing <laughs> we've got we've got the problem here that we're in a bit of a blind spot so we're, we're just used to, we're using still like copper phone lines so i'm on adsl connection that we there is broadband like just out there like fiber but uh -huh. we can't get to it and so if we want to get onto that broadband we have to have satellite broadband or, or uh, wireless you know um, yeah. and it's just expensive and it's a pain in the ass and it's <laughs> most of the time we get away with it it's not too much and then every once in a while something like that comes along so yes my apologies oh no worries but I did I heard the question and you were talking about the um uh the, the bookstores and the um 
the nature of like genre in bookstore. Um, and I was going to say, I think that's the problem. A lot of the time it's bookstores that cause the problem because they need to put it in one place. Mm-hmm. So if a book's got crime and it's got fantasy, they have to choose. Does it go in crime or does it go in fantasy? They can't put it in both. Right. Something with Amazon and stuff like that, we have the ability to list all these different places that it fits, but bookstores sort of don't allow that, which is why more often than not, like you said, sometimes there's a horror section and it's good. Often there's not a horror section and all the horror just goes with the thrillers or with the crime, or you have a science fiction and fantasy section and it's like this massive spread of all kinds of stuff. And then half the fantasy is actually in YA. And yeah, it, it's it, yeah, it's a weird situation, but when we try to categorize things, we create problems. Yeah, there, there's been, especially, so YA fiction itself, is just super weird. I've gone into bookstores before and, and found, uh, you know, books like Bad Royale and YA. And I'm just like, just because it has children in it doesn't mean it's like a yeah. child's yeah. book. Like, this is super violent. I have to go up and be like, can't have this in there. <laughs> there's, there's an author, an Australian author called Jay Kristoff. Um, and he writes YA with Amy Kaufman. Um, and he writes stuff on his own that is absolutely not YA. It's so bloody and brutal and is um this kind of there's always like smut as he calls it he called he writes these blood and smut books there's always like sex on the page and all this sort of stuff yeah. and he frequently sees his solo stuff shelved along with the ya stuff that he writes with amy kaufman and he's constantly going to bookstores <laughs> and going, this is not ya and it's got a young female protagonist and it's like but she's you know she's not a kid she's like 17 or 18 or something and it's like this is not YA you've really got to stop shelving it this way so yeah people people get some surprises but that's when you get into like the that like new adult kind of category yeah kind of yeah that's right it's, it's a it's one of those weird crossover ones right because there there are a lot of like science fiction books that I've read that are really good but it takes place in between it's like that time when you're learning how to be an adult right Mm. but people want to people either want to put it in YA because it's more familiar and they're like oh well it's at the end of that kind of part of your life um or they want to just put it in like adult fiction but it's not really adult fiction either because yeah the premises that it that it's at so yeah I would say like genre is always a good thing to have and then you know those those categories of the different kinds of styles of writing can be can also shoot you in the foot (laughs) yeah well exactly i mean it's a useful thing to some degree it's it's useful to say hey it's a bit like this and it's a bit like that but if it comes to if it becomes too prescriptive then you end up sort of missing out on things that you might really enjoy or things being targeted kind of to to the wrong audience and stuff like that so yeah it can yeah it, it can be it can be more of a problem but but we do with with the sort of animal that likes to categorize things people like to know where something fits so yeah. So speaking of, of categorizations, this is this is something that I know some people hate these kinds of questions because um, you probably like them all equally. Uh, but if you could look at your whole collective library of just your novellas and your novels, um, you know, not anything that you, you've co-wrote with anyone or any of the short stories, but out of your novels and your novellas, what would you say are like the, the top three that you're that you're like? I'm super proud of these ones. And, you know, like you have, they're like all your babies, but the, if you were to like put the top ones on the shelf it's, there. It's always a tough question, isn't it? Um, well, okay. So there's, in fact, you can see a couple of them over my shoulder. 
So yeah. that one is Devour and Dark. That's the, um, it's like a supernatural London crime, supernatural assassins, corrupt cops, organized crime kind of vibe. Uh, that's a standalone novel. Um, I'm very proud of that one, but partly because that's probably uh, probably one of my most personal novels. That, that one's very much an exploration of um, death and dying and the justice and injustice of death and, you know, who gets to live on even though they're an asshole and who gets, you know, who gets sick and dies young and all those kind of things. I, I've, I explore a lot of that in, in that book. Um, and, and there's one character in that book who's, um, who's dying, he's in a palliative care home. Um, and some of the lines that that character gives are like direct quotes of some of the stuff my own dad said when he was in that situation and when, when he was dying. Um, and so that that draws really deeply. That one's really close to the bone for me. So I'm always I always uh, when people say, "What's well, your favorite book?" or whatever, it's, it's such a difficult question to answer. But that's definitely up there, if for no other reason than that. On the one hand, I think it's a it's a I think it's a great book. I think I did a I, I pretty much did what I set out to do in this sort of this crime and corrupt cop and weird sort of supernatural element crossover that I was trying to do. Um, and it, it also draws on a fairly deep personal well. Um, and the one next to it there is The Gulp, which is the, uh, which is, if, uh, well, actually, I was going to say it's my latest book. It's not because Ghost Recall came out since The Gulp, actually. Um, but that's a, a, a sort of a mosaic novel of five novellas. Um, and Again, that was a that was a situation where I had an idea of something that I wanted to do and a thing that I was trying to pull off, and I think actually managed to do a really good job of it. And so, and the way that it's been reviewed and the sort of response that it's had from readers has just been fantastic. So, you know, I wanted to create this fictional, weird, isolated Australian harbour town and have all this weird and strange stuff happening, and it sort of came together well and it's been received well. And the second, the sequel to that, The Fall, is out in April. Another five novellas and across all 10 stories, we get one big kind of story arc um, where, where everything kind of feeds back on itself and it all, and it was, it was hard. It was difficult to, it was difficult to pull off what I was trying to do. And I think I did a good job of it. So, uh, so yeah, those are the books probably at the moment I'm most proud of. And yeah. otherwise there's the Alex Kane series as well, which is a trilogy. Is that one there? Oh, that's that one. That's bound the first of the Alex Kane um, trilogy. Um, that's my that's my legacy publishing one. That's published by HarperCollins here in Australia. The, the, the sort of uh, the big fat, the dark fantasy trilogy with a uh, you know full on martial arts action hero main character, and I got to pull off a lot of a lot of my own sort of martial philosophy and stuff went into that book and into those characters. Um, and that, and those books did in terms of career that trilogy did a lot for me. It's um, got me a lot of new readers and opened a lot of doors, which was really nice. So. So I see the, aside from the, the books that you got behind you, I see that you got your, your Harrison Ford poster of the Blade Runner and, and Enter the Dragon, <laughs> the two super yeah. classic movies. Are those, are those the two characters within, within those um, realms? Are, are, are they kind of? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely influenced by movies. Um, I've, I've been an avid voracious reader like my whole life uh, my first love is always reading and you know novels and stories um but graphic novels and comic books and movies have always been a massive influence on me as well and the two films I've probably watched and come back to more often than any others other if there was a third poster up there it would probably be the thing the John Carpenter 
um, one yeah, for the yeah. thing. Because <laughs> if, if, if there are three movies I've seen more times than I could possibly actually count, it would be those three. They're real comfort movies for me, the three of them. Um, and yeah, so th those posters are up there for those reasons, I guess. It's, um, yeah, it would be nice to find a spot for a, I, I want the, you know, the poster with the suit, with the with the hooded jacket and the light coming yeah. out of the face, that classic thing poster. I'd love to get that at some point. For some reason, I've just never managed to find that one. <laughs> um, but they, the, apart from anything else, the, the, those movies, the, the way that Blade Runner uses this sort of dark, noir, near future kind of vibe, I love the feel and the mashup of that. And I love the exploration of, life and what life is and where we come from and who we are and all that sort of stuff um and of course enter the dragon the, the other side of my life as a martial artist and a kung fu instructor and everything um i love that concept and some of the philosophy and stuff that's that's shared in that movie and just the straight up cool like almost video game action kind of aspect of how that film is put together um yeah they're, they're just they're just cool and i try to a lot of what i write i think in, in different ways tries to capture those kind of vibes um the sort of thing that yeah that you get from movies like those and the thing as well the sort of the unknown and the tension and the horror of what's out there and who can you trust can't you trust and those sorts of things and i think i draw a lot on those themes so with <clears throat> So with those kind of film, would you say that that those kinds of film genres, um, to go to go back kind of to the to the you know brick and mortar kind of genre um, stuff, would you say that one you you find that one kind of category falls into your writing more than the other, or would you say that it's pretty fairly mixed throughout? I don't know it's a tough call, really. I mean, everything I I write tends to go dark. Like even if I I don't tend to write stuff that has that's sort of light and happy or has, you know, great resolutions. There's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of sort of general darkness in what I do. I really love that kind of noir vibe. Um, but yeah, I don't know. A lot of the time it's, it, a lot of the time it's more a feeling and a sense of place that I sort of explore more than any sort of um, recognition of a particular genre or style that I'm going after in any particular way. And I think that, you know, after having been at this for a while now, I think you probably just end up developing a voice that sort of permeates whatever way you go. Like, you know, like Devouring Dark is, is a London gangster novel. The Gulp is very much an Australian sort of isolated harbour town um, story. You know, they're, they're very different sort of locations and different kind of characters but there's this thread of me as the writer through them and it'd be nice to think that at some point um I've begun to develop um a sort of style and a voice that becomes recognizable and you know and people would buy it because it's an Alan Baxter book not because it's about this or about that or I'd like to think so how true that is I don't know yeah. well I know with so with the with the gulp and then uh with the fall as well I had two. I had two questions for you, um, but I like. I, so I like that like vibe of like the, the like strange harbor town because I'm I'm originally from um, Massachusetts, which you know everybody just considers. Oh, you know you're from Boston, and Boston is connected to a harbor town. But I don't have the accent or anything. I was I was you know born on the western Massachusetts, which well, there's no. Um, we don't really have an accent really until you get halfway through 
And then you start saying things like Worcester and you park the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I would I would go there with a lot of my friends and we'd go to Boston. Sometimes we'd go to the harbor and stuff like that. So I those those books especially um and, and don't worry I'm, I'm not going to ruin anything for the fall i'll just tell everyone go go pre-order it when you can <laughs> do it <laughs> <laughs> thank you um <clears throat> yeah so what i was what i was wondering um with those two is i got a lot of twilight zone and outer limits vibes and i was wondering if those were were those shows that you know you grew up watching or yeah yeah i've always loved you know and as well as that things like x files and creep show and all those i really love that kind of either either like an ongoing series or an anthology show where um each, each individual part might be its own story but each story is very intrinsically connected to the place and to the other things that came before it in many ways and so uh, like one of the best compliments I got um, when the, when the gulp first came out was I, I forget which reviewer it was now I apologize to them in advance but one of the reviewers um, came out and said Baxter's found his castle rock which was like oh, thank you that's that I wasn't really written I wasn't sort of primarily conscious of that, but I was aware of the fact that what I was trying to do was create my own weird Australian version of like a castle rock or an Innsmouth or a whatever. Um, and then when, when you've got a place like that and the surrounding area and, you know, the stories do spread out a little bit and the sort of surrounding area is mentioned, um, then, then you just get to set stories in that place and you can, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd of a reader as well. I love it when there's an Easter egg in something, when you can read something, oh, that's that guy. Or, you know, or the story that's completely unrelated, but they go to this one particular pub or something. And he's like, that's where that other story happened. Uh, I really I really like that kind of interconnected nature of things, um, as well as that sort of episodic um, sort of style of story. So, yeah, it was, it, it was a bit of that involved. It was in part, it was because the ocean fascinates me because it's just terrifying because it's just huge and deep and massive and who that we know who the hell knows what's down yeah, there we know really. more about space than we know about the oceans that's yeah exactly it's absolutely <laughs> terrifying um which is why and i live near a harbor town i mean i live up in the up in dairy valleys but it's a 10 minute drive and i'm in a harbor town so you know i um, i've sort of i've got that locally as well and okay. the harbor town that's near me uh, and the gulp have a very similar um street layout because you know why reinvent the wheel um it's definitely not the same place but i just use the kind of like the urban map if you like to, to be similar um and so i love that idea of where you have a town that's isolated it's in the country there's not much else everywhere else is a drive so it's got bush around it it's got country around it it's got the ocean just right there on the doorstep and who the hell knows what's out there kind of thing and and then you can draw on all those different elements and so yeah, it's, I, I find that really sort of fascinating. And then you just get to ex play around with those, like you said, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, all those sorts of stories. You just get to play around with all those ideas, but you've got this sandbox to play in with those things. Yeah. So with those kind of, because, you know, the, 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 the gulp and the fall, they aren't your only 
books where you know you either have multiple stories or you know you have multiple um, volumes in uh, a certain setting or or for a certain story. Uh, do you like? Do you draw these maps in your head of like, okay, this is over here and like this is here? Do you like? Do you like write stuff down or like what is? What is your creative process behind these and do they like differ from book to book or is it just like all in your yeah in your well it varies a lot it differs from book to book um with like with, with devouring dark it's it's set in london um and a lot of that was just because i used to spend a lot of time in london I, I lived you know like a 30 minute train ride away and i would spend most weekends up there for a certain age and stuff uh, and a lot of that book takes place around places like camden and places um, that I'm just sort of familiar with so those sorts of things it was just set there and it was close enough didn't need to be too detailed um, and I, I remembered enough you know I knew enough to just to roll with it um, but when we come when it comes up to something like the gulp um, and the fall that started growing and because I was creating this place um, and I needed to get it right when I referred back to things I did make a point of starting to make more notes and more sketches and initially it really was literally just a sketch on an a4 piece of paper um but it's got to the point now where i've gone into um what do you call it uh, google earth with the with the satellite imagery and yeah. i've taken shots and i've used photoshop and pasted together kind of it's a it's really sort of haphazard but i've kind of pasted together the shape of what i'm looking at so i can see it um and i've got pages of notes about who's who and who did what and who went where um, and it sort of grows in the process of writing it and when I'm doing something it's like okay if there's a character description I'll, I'll chuck it in a character file because if that character crops up again I'm going to need to find an easy reference back to them um, I've got jotted down where all the different places are the names of the streets and stuff that I've used so that I can go back to them as well so with the with Goldpepper um, and, and those two books so far, I've actually got extensive notes and sketches and even this photoshopped like Frankenstein of a map that I've kind of chopped together just to give me a, an idea of what I'm doing. And so I can remember where I'm at with these things. So um, and then other, other stories I don't pay too much attention to at all. A lot of short stories. Um, the, the, the place is a very small snapshot and I don't need you know too much detail or it's entirely fictional, you know, so yeah so it's almost like you you play dungeons and dragons at some point the dungeon master i know right it is a bit like that if you i mean if, if you looked at the folder where all the stuff with the gold and the fall are it, it looks a bit like a DD campaign folder because i've got character sheets i've got like historical records i've got maps i've got yeah so well, may, i'm gonna I mean, do a thing for my patreons uh, patreons patreons my patrons on patreon i'm gonna do a thing on there soon where i'm gonna after the fall comes out i'm gonna share the uh the map that i work from so it's not something i would ever make actually public but i'll share it with patrons and people can see this frankenstein map that i built and stuff. <laughs> i was gonna say maybe you could like hit up you know the 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 D, &D group and be like got a special project for you <laughs> yeah well there's a thing actually there's a website incarnate um that you can use for map building in D, &D. um and I, it, I have actually seriously considered going on there and and actually doing a proper version of the of the gold pepper map in incarnate and having and then having that as an actual you know decent image which i might get around to at some point but it feels like a lot of work <laughs> you gotta take like a, a week's vacation or something you know just 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, just sit there and build Gulpepper in Incarnate. Or um, I do have another. I can't even remember what it's called now. I've got this software that um, was for that was for map building, and it was I think it was on special for like thirty bucks at some point. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get that. I'm going to do loads of maps. Um, and I never got around to it. I never. I didn't use it yet, but um, that might be something worth looking at at some point. Can't even remember what it's called. I was just looking for it, but I can't see it. <laughs> so you're you're also, um, which is this is kind of you know primarily how I found out about you and your and your work and your writing and everything. Um, you're a very prominent member of the uh, Horror Writers Association as well. Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Like when when you got into that and how that's been going. Yeah. Um, well, it's two-sided because um, I'm there's the Australasian Horror Writers Association, which is sort of our local version, which includes mostly Australia and New Zealand, but it's also you know parts of the Pacific and New Guinea, Samoa, whatever sort of constitutes Australasia. Um, that was started back in 2003 by Marty Young, um, and I'm currently now the president of that association so that takes up uh, sort of a fair chunk of my attention um, and that's something that we really use to try to promote Australasian horror writers and their writing and provide opportunities and we produce Midnight Echo magazine um, and we do that these are shadows awards up here um, yeah. they're, they're managed by the uh, association before I was president I won a few of those I'm not eligible now of course because I'm part of the association so if I retire at some point I might be eligible to go in for them again um, and so that takes up a lot of my sort of attention more locally, but also the actual, the main HWA, the Horror Writers Association in the, based in the US um, was on my radar for a while. And when I sold the Alex Kane um, trilogy uh, to HarperCollins, I became eligible to become a full active member. You reach a certain sort of level of professionalism. There's different levels of, you know, of membership. And that's so after the sale of the Alex Kane trilogy was when I, um, became eligible to become a full member and so I try to be as active as I can on that front as well and just I just to be honest I spend a lot of time here mm -hmm. on my own my wife calls it the cave and oh you're going in the cave all right I'll see you later and I'm here you know making stuff up um, and pre-COVID times I would do as much as I could to get out to events and to conventions and stuff like that but of course, being in Australia, it's there's good stuff that happens here, but it's very difficult. We're very expensive to get overseas um, and to kind of hang out with people and be part of a bigger community. Um, but stuff like the HWA really allows an online version of that and is surprisingly effective. You know, like there's really good people in the HWA. It's really supportive and, you know, friendly. And you, I've met a lot of good people, a lot of good friends through the HWA and I've got several people who I still haven't actually ever met face to face, but I consider good mates that I've, you know, yet to actually run into. Um, I got to StokerCon in Providence. Uh, when was that? 2019, 2018 or 2019? I can't remember. Um, I can't be one of those. It, um, that, so I finally got out to a StokerCon and I got to actually meet a lot of um, people in the flesh for the first time who I become quite friendly with people like uh, sort of Paul Tremblay and, Paul Tremblay, John Taff, um, um, so many people that I've interacted with and had really interesting conversations, learned a lot from, shared a lot of stuff with, or maybe even shared books, you know, might have been in anthologies with these people and we've chatted about it and stuff. And then finally got to meet them, which was great. But even if I hadn't got to meet them, the existence of the HWA means that 
I've been able to interact with them for such a long time, you know, so it, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a good thing. I, I want to really sort of promote it and support it as much as I can because it's supported me a lot over the years, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a pretty cool organization because it's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, even if you're not um, an author or, you know, a, a script writer or anything, I mean, if you're just someone like me, you just wants to like go on and, and, you know, support people and, you know, yeah. get people on here and get, get the word out or, you know, uh, even just make connections and, you know, maybe just get some feedback. You know, sometimes I'll send somebody a message and be like, hey, I'm thinking about, <clears throat> you know, sending some of my work out. Um, you know, and I saw that, you know, you've gone through, you know, this publisher. Yeah. What are some things that I need to, to look out for? And, you know, sometimes they'll, you know, they'll look at some of your work and be like, okay, these are things that you need to fix, you know? And so it's always nice to just have <clears throat> those different kinds of connections. So, yeah, and that's the thing with the HWA that's so supportive, like, you you know, you've got old school professionals, you know, people like Brian Keane or whatever, and you've got new newbies coming up who are young people that are just getting into it and they haven't even written anything yet, they're just keen to do it, or they don't really want to write something, they just are fans and want to be part of it, and everybody's just treated the same way, it's just like, well, yeah, but that's cool, we're just all into horror, it's great, and you can chit chat about stuff, and, and people will be honest, and that's a really useful thing in this industry, like you said, you know, if you want to ask someone about publishers or you want to ask about things people will be honest people will be helpful it's good yeah so what are some some things that you have learned along the way from you know when you first started writing and you were doing all of your your, your like your dark fantasy and your sci-fi stuff and started moving into the horror are there different kinds of things that you've learned that are only for specific types of writing or does it kind of cascade into everything it spreads into everything really um i mean there are certain there, there are sort there are certain genre tropes and genre conventions that you kind of need to know about that you then follow or you choose not to follow or whatever but you kind of need to know about them in the first place in order to do that um but largely that comes from what I think is one of the most important things about being a writer anyway, which is just reading and the, just, you know, the, the vast majority of writers are first and foremost voracious readers. That's, that's what we do. We love the written word. So that's where it is kind of where it comes from. Um, and then the actual sort of, you know, like the, the, the process of writing and things you learn along the way and the things that you learn to do tend to be sort of organic and spread across all writing. Um, <clears throat> I, I do a lot of mentorship stuff as well. Um, I do some mentoring through the Australasian Horror Writers Association, but I also work with a company where we um, we mentor people who are keen to be writing, but they, they suffer from autism or Asperger's on some level. Um, and it's a company run by a great author friend of mine um, called Jason Fisher, who's autistic himself. Um, and it's really interesting what I've been learning by doing mentorship with these folks, um, because these these guys that I work with, they, they'll write about all sorts of things. They've got people who are anime fans and they're writing their anime fanfic or they're writing, you know, YA stuff or they're writing romantic stuff or whatever, stuff, stuff well outside the realm of anything I would normally write myself or mentor through the AHWA and stuff like that. And yet what I'm finding is that any advice that I would give to horror writers is the same advice I'm giving to these people when I'm editing and helping these people polish up their stories 
it's the same stuff that's coming up about the best you know about use of language and, and repetition and the good grammar and the way to, to you know not overwriting things not underwriting things all those sort of generalized rules um it really does just apply across genre good storytelling is good storytelling regardless of what kind of genre or vibe you're working towards i think so yeah it's it's very much a, a process of it's a craft basically you develop a craft you know and the craft applies regardless of subject yeah yeah and i think that speaks volumes too just as, as far as you know being being able to go into that kind of cross genre thing and then you start to realize okay like even though the the story might be different the arc and the three-act structure is generally the same you know unless they're going mm -hmm. off on some kind of tangent where it's like a five arc structure or seven arc yeah that's when the start rules still apply however many peaks and troughs you have the rules the general <laughs> rules still apply so yeah yeah, true. yeah. and so, that the other thing as well that what something that i find myself reiterating over and over again as well a lot of the time when i'm working with other writers um is really starting to try to understand the difference between plot and story and to really figure that out because a plot is important this happens then this happens and this happens you you need to kind of have a process of what's going to happen but the story is why you give a shit about it and so and that that comes from the characters and the way the characters interact with the plot as well as the way they interact with each other and the location and all that stuff and it's all that stuff about why you care about the story that is that is the real power in storytelling so a good plot is a good plot but it's so superficial without good story and i find regardless of genre that's the stuff we're always trying to draw up why do i care about these people why do i care what happens to them why do i care whether they get the thing or get or whatever you know right and and that's and i'm still i'm still sort of back applying that to my own work as well you know a lot of the time really trying to lean into the thought of why do people care about this i'm writing the story i'm enjoying it i've got some cool ideas why does anyone else give a shit? What, what is it that's going to appeal to people about this? And then you try to create that that thing that that readers want to care about and what happened, what happened, what happened, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's that is I'm really glad that you you're pointing that out, because that is one of the things that uh, I really stressed in, in my solo episode before I had uh, guest start coming on the show um, is that a lot of the times and especially in situations like this where it's like a talk if it's like a talk show or a hangout show on a podcast or something or if it's uh you know on some kind of show where they're talking to people one of the things that always gets brought up is people are like oh well what was your inspiration for this story but there's the inspiration and then there's the reason and you can't really you can't tell a story without having either of those things like you you could be inspired to write something and never actually write it but it once sure. you have that reason it's just like okay well like you said it's like now i know why this character is doing this now i know you know why why do we care about these things you know it's like it's, it's kind of like uh you know the the age-old question why did the chicken cross the road well you have to find the reason as to why the chicken crossed the road or else you don't you don't give a fuck <laughs> yeah otherwise it's just a chicken on a road who cares All right <laughs> but it's it's interesting as well that the other side of this is that you don't have to know that in advance either because for me a lot of the time thematically what i'm writing about reveals itself in the process of writing the first draft is going along and i get almost towards the end of the book 
and I kind of know what's going to happen and I get that first draft pretty much down and it's scruffy, it needs polishing up. But when the first draft is finished, you sit back and look at it and go, oh, all right, that's what this book is about. So that's that's the these are the themes that I've been like subconsciously drilling around on. And so that then when you do go back and you start doing your subsequent drafts, you can go, yeah, now this is a book about this stuff. And then you can really sort of highlight that stuff and develop that. And then you're like, this is why those characters did that thing, because it's, you know, this is the theme of this book. And that stuff kind of to come tends to come out. So I think it's important that people don't feel like they can't start if they don't know what something is about. It's like, fuck it, just tell a story. Tell your story in the first instance. If you've got a few cool ideas, throw them all in the pot, come up with some characters, tell the story. In the process of telling it, you will kind of figure out what your story is about and what 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 thematically what you're sort of digging into. And then you polish that up later. So yeah. You know, the first draft is always, you know, that's that's the the primordial ooze kind of, of like first what... draft is you telling yourself the story somebody right. said to me once and that's always stuck with me and it's because the first draft you tell yourself the story and then subsequent drafts you polish that into something that is good for other people to read and it's like yeah i i i, I follow that so i just got to tell myself the story i've got to figure out what's going on i'll make it good later yeah so on on noting that has we ever gotten to a point where you finished the first draft and then gone back and be like i'm not working on this anymore and just moved on to something else like it just it wasn't clicking together or do you kind of know that before you get to that um not to the point where i'm never working on it again i have on a couple of occasions there have been books where it's like okay this is not working i need to put this away and figure out why it's not working and i'll come back to it much later i wrote a piece a little while ago um a few years ago now probably called when you know your book is broken um and that was about exactly that like pretty much got to the end of the first draft and i'm like okay there's a fundamental flaw with the ideas in this story it, it it's not working it can't work like this it's kind of it, it's almost self-contradictory in a way and it's like I, I don't i don't know how to fix that and i just put it away um and that book which which I first started writing several years ago. Um, I've actually just this year, um, well, end of last year, actually finished a draft that I've now just that I've now sent to my agent. It took that long to get it right because I had to keep putting it away um, and just working on other stuff, just letting it cook in the hindbrain kind of thing and figure out what was going on. I did at one point have this revelation. I was like, oh, hang on this is this is the problem this is the flaw this is this this is why the idea isn't working right um and i did go back and and rewrite the whole thing um like really significantly redrafted it um that solved the biggest problems but it still wasn't quite right it still wasn't quite cooked and that was a book i had to go back because normally i'll finish something and i'll put it away for a while while i work on something else and even though it's only a first draft it's cohesive it's basically all there and then after i've had some space from it i'll go back and i'll redraft it and polish it up until it's good to go um but this particular book i put away and came back to probably three or four times before i finally got that momentum to push through and polish it up and go okay right now now that's 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 the book i was trying to write that's the story i was trying to tell so yeah i probably started writing that book in probably four years ago and yeah literally it was the end of last year that it finally went to my agent so i mean you can't write a book in in, in like 
a day and it's just <laughs> yeah honestly it's interesting that the more i do this the more my first drafts are like what my third or fourth drafts used to be like because i don't make a lot of the mistakes i used to make so my first drafts are a lot cleaner now than they ever used to be uh but no it's it's still uh it's still a long and laborious and infuriating process i still don't know how to write a book i figure it out again every time and everyone is different so <laughs> yeah i think that I, I i would be i feel like i would be very concerned if i met somebody that was like that if, if that was 100 they're like i know how to write a book like first time one and done i'd be very concerned like, yeah <laughs> a lot of the old pulp writers used to do that back in the day <clears throat> you know in the 30s 40s 50s when there'd be a lot of pulp fiction out there and they'd write these maybe they'd write a 30,000 or 40,000 word novel, like a small pulp novel. They'd, they'd just sit there and just drink and smash this thing out over the course of a weekend. Yeah. Um, bang, it would be on the newsstand in the rotating sort of things like two months later. Um, but it also, it tell, you can tell these guys were great at churning out that pulp story, but it's kind of, it's contradictory and repetitive and whatever, because you can tell it was just this kind of mass produced stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, there's yeah. Unless you're prepared to to build that kind of career, that there isn't really a space for anymore, which is almost sad in a way. But um, but yeah, when you want to when you want to write good books, you you do need to accept the fact that it's going to take more than one draft. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting too with you know a lot of the older writers, um, you know, whether it's crime or whether you're talking about you know somebody like Poe, you know, or you know, pretty much any of those authors, like um, Lovecraft does that, uh, Arthur, Arthur Machen did that a lot, you know, yeah. where, yeah, Robert Howard, yeah, people, Robert Howard, yeah. they're just pumping out stories, but a lot of those too, when they're going, uh, you know, like you said, they're going on the newsstands and everything else, you know, they might, they might have had a story that, you know, they're just sitting down and pumping it out, but then they also have that, like, you know, the, the papers will be like, it has to be X amount of words. And sometimes yeah. I feel like when you go back and read some of that writing, there's good stories in there. But like you said, you could feel how like mass produced some of it is because they also, they, they know what the, the paper is looking for or, you know, whatever group they're submitting to, what they're looking for. They got a super tight deadline. They have a story they want to tell, but it has to like fit all this kind of narrative structure and like x amount of words and so like, yeah going back and reading some of that stuff it's like I, I feel like they either left this part out or like this whole yeah. chunk like doesn't need to be there but like it needs to hit the word yeah. count so yeah the editor came back and said this is great but it needs to be thirty thousand words not twenty thousand words and oh, they cram in this whole subplot that doesn't go anywhere and send it back and so yeah <laughs> And, and it's great you know you can kind of you can see how the sausage is made a lot of the time in those old stories but they are they are fantastic they're seminal for what they are you know and they they paved the way for so much of the weird fiction and stuff that we just love these days you know people like Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and Robert, you know yeah it's classic stuff it's really good stuff are there are there any like specific authors like if somebody were it's like if somebody were to ask you hey um I want to start writing, but I want to know kind of where to start from as far as the roots of, you know, a particular kind of style. Like say if somebody wanted to write, um, you know, like some sci-fi crime noir or something, how, like what uh, writers would you suggest if, if you were going to say like, oh, go back and like either a time period or certain kind of, of uh, 
authors. It's interesting. You know, this this is something that came up a little while ago. Um, I don't think it's not necessary mm -hmm. to have read the classics anymore. Um, like, if you want to be a horror writer, you don't have to go back and read Lovecraft. If you want to be a science fiction writer, you don't have to go back and read Heinlein. Um, they were they were a product of their time. They absolutely influenced sort of people that came after. But, you know, we're getting close to 100 years yeah. since those guys. And there's been so many amazing writers who have written since them. You know, the, the sort of next generation of people like Robert Silverberg and people like that. And then subsequently after that, there's been another generation of writers. Um, and really, my advice to anyone who wants to write something is read everything sort of relevant to that genre that is out now and that is coming out now read what people are writing now because that's where the genre is right that's been informed by what came before it and that was informed by what came before it and it builds and it builds but that's where that's where we are now so if you want to write horror you should be reading the people who are still currently publishing horror if you want to read science fiction you know and that that applies to the people you know the the older sort of school, like, you know, your Ramsey Campbells and people like that who are still publishing now, as well as the, you know, the bright young things who are, who are on the sort of cutting edge of what's new and being published. But read that chunk of stuff that's being currently published now, because that's the history that you're building directly on. You don't have to go back and read the classics to understand that stuff. You can enjoy that stuff. You can draw on that and get your inspiration and your motivation from the amazing stories that are being published right now from anybody who's 20 years old or 80 years old. If they're publishing now, that's contemporary. That's interesting. That's informed by everything that came before. Read that, enjoy that, and use that as your fuel to write because that's that's all you need to know. You know, that's everything that came before that is in other ways kind of encapsulated in it. So if you do then want to go back and read the historic classic, then by all means do it. But you do then have to be prepared for real, they're not then, but they are now really cliched plots. You have to watch out for so much sexism and racism and stuff that crops up in those stories because it was just so casually ignored, you know, back in those times. And you, it, it is... It is interesting. It is cool. And if you've sort of read it and it, it, you can definitely get into it and enjoy it, but it's not necessary to have an education in it to be a writer now. I think it's really important to encourage that. The last thing you want to do is find someone who's got a passion and go, I really want to be a horror writer. And you go, right, go back and read so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so from the 20s, 30s and 40s. And they read this stuff and go, oh, oh right, this is boring as fuck. I don't know what's going on. And, and then they kind of lose their impetus to write. But you tell them, okay, go and read Nathan Bollingrad, read Karen Warren, read Cassandra Court, read these people who are turning out this. And they'll be like, wow, this stuff's mind-blowing. And they'll want to emulate. And then, you know, you hopefully fuel up the next generation that way. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that speaks volumes too, because, I mean, that's, I, I don't know you know, how, how a lot of schools are, but I know that a lot of the schools that I've, I've looked at and even, you know, in the degree program that I have, um, they still do that where they're just, if, if you're going to write, you know, if you're going to be a contemporary writer, you need to read all this like old stuff. And it's like, well, there's, there's, I haven't been in one class. I'm going to be finished with, with uh, college in October of this year, thankfully. And then I can hopefully get more of my writing out. Um, but just, just as far as like 
the writing and the reading and the reading. Um, a lot of the, the writing and the reading that we do is, is, you know, vastly based on older stuff. And it's like, well, I have these, I have this like, you know, small book haul, <laughs> say that with quotations, because like no one goes, no, no reader's going to go to a bookstore and just buy one book. I, I don't know. Unless, yeah. unless they have some serious self-control. I, I can't. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'll, I'll go and I'll get like a stack of books and I'll be like, you know, I have these books over here. I can like, I, I could literally dismantle one of these and, you know, read through it and write a paper on this and what, you know, the different yeah stylistic purposes of what they're using for everything and that's it i'm always really wary as soon as someone says anything oh you got to read the classics it's immediate red flag to me it's like you you don't if you want to excuse me if you want to by all means because there are some there's some great stuff there and it was it it is a classic for a reason Mm -hmm. but you don't have to read it to be able to write now you really don't there's so much good stuff out there that can inform you know what what you want to do it's uh yeah i really i really think it, it's a real problem when you get these people say no you can't write horror unless you've read lovecraft yes you can there are people out there writing amazing horror who've never even heard of lovecraft it's like you know it's it's not it's it's not a prerequisite mm-hmm. it's yeah yeah i mean especially like you know with cosmic horror and that kind of stuff i mean you could just go and read um you know you got stuff like annihilation uh, from Jeff Vandermeer. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff that he writes, you know, is very just out there. And you know, then you got all these television shows that people could watch and all these different streaming. That's right. Yeah, you know, Stranger Things and whatever. You've got Laird Barron out there writing some amazing um, cosmic horror and stuff these days. It's it, it, yeah, you, you you need to you need to have an education in what's out there in terms of what's been done before, yeah. but. You need to have. You don't need to have that education from a hundred years ago. You can take that education across the last twenty or thirty years and have more than enough that you need to know. Um, And I've written um, the majority of what I write leans to some degree or another towards cosmic horror in one way or another. There's always this kind of, you know, this kind of cosmic vibe in what I do. I've written literally two short stories that use Lovecraft mythos. Mm both times when I was um, commissioned to write one, one for um, an anthology of Lovecraftian Halloween stories uh, and one for um, a volume of the Cthulhu Down Under series that's published um, here by IFWG where it's it's Cthulhu mythos stories set in Australasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were two stories that specifically wrote with Cthulhu mythos or with you know Lovecraftian mythos. But otherwise the vast, you know, loads of what I write is cosmic horror and none of it has anything to do with Lovecraft or his creations or his mythos or anything else. And he wasn't the only one doing it even back then, you know, out on Blackwood and people like that. Other people were doing it. Other people were playing in his sandpit as well as making up their own mythologies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's dangerous when you sort of focus in on one person that did one thing and said, this is what you've got to follow. No, you don't. You Actually, don't with, to, you with, uh, with HP Lovecraft, a lot of people... The way that the way that that whole thing comes up, right? It's like he so he gets a lot of the credit, but he was actually part. I, I can't remember the what what they called themselves, but he was part of a writers group, and there were like four or five yeah. other authors that he would meet up with, and yeah. they would put out, you know, their own kind of either like cosmic horror or different kinds of, um, you know, kind of darker genre stuff, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at Robert W. Chambers and, and the King in Yellow stuff, you know, he was contemporary to Lovecraft <clears throat> and he was writing at the same time and writing on similar themes. Mm. Uh, nothing, they did, you know, they did cross things over with each other. They, you know, they would play and because they were mates and they were like writers group or whatever. Mm -hmm. But but a lot of what was written there, Lovecraft is the one that everybody remembers and focuses on now, but there's so much other good stuff out there. And even then, you so you, you want to read the classics, you could even direct someone to go back into that time period and read a whole bunch of stuff, but not Lovecraft, and they would still get a strong education in the, in the classics of that era, you know? Right. So, As like you yeah. said, I mean, a lot of, a lot of writing um, is very reminiscent of the time and what, you know, what things are acceptable, what things aren't uh and mm. you know just how the people view the world right and so a lot of times yeah. when people go back and they're just like oh well you know lovecraft was racist and you're like well yeah a lot of people were very racist back then so it's like that is mm. you can't having said that lovecraft was racist even by the standards of his own time yeah <laughs> like even <laughs> other people at the same time were going geez lovecraft you are one seriously racist weirdo. yeah um but even even then um it a, a Lovecraft's deep-seated um, racism and xenophobia did inform a lot about how he constructed story and how he was just terrified of anything he considered to be other. Um, and so it did sort of inform so much of his work. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a fan of a lot of Lovecraft's work. I mean, I recognise the legacy um, that that's had. But then other people who weren't just so horrible basically you know Lovecraft was a pretty horrible person yeah. um other people who weren't so horrible were exploring similar themes with the different kind of personal um history involved and so their stories came out differently and they wrote uh, you know thematically on different things even though there was a lot of similarity into the way it was built and even though it was still very much a product of its time you look at Robert E Howard and a lot of the Conan stuff um there's frequently this kind of oh that's uncomfortable sort of um casual racism in that whereas that is more a product of the sort of mindset at the time rather than a genuinely deep-seated racism yeah. in the author and so you you can see you can see differences in that front you know but yeah and it's the same with the sexism and the you know there's a there's so much machismo in a lot of those stories and there's so much um either subtle or just truly overt sexism in those stories but you can still see among those authors the ones who were just kind of a product of that era and there are a handful that clearly had a problem with women so yeah you know it's yeah these are things that you can find out as you go along but you don't have to, to go back to the original point you don't have to read any of that if you don't want to right so. and i mean like even even now i mean i it's interesting it's interesting and i'm not i'm not saying you know uh we're without that stuff now because you know there are there are books that i've wrote where i'm like yep like that's they're they're they ain't women <laughs> or, or like, yeah. uh probably probably wouldn't hang out with a you know this person at a bar or something probably <laughs> wouldn't get along but i think that you know especially when you when when people are reading a certain author right so there's there's two kinds of voices right so there's the author's voice from the author's perspective right when they start getting into the groove of everything uh, uh, you know like i'm gonna write these books and this is the voice that i'm gonna have while i'm working on them and uh you know then when i move on to the next one or if it's a series and then there's the author's voice from the reader's perspective and 
what I found that's really interesting from just some of my friends that have published books or, you know, talking to other people that, you know, when they make a film or they make a game or they come out with a, with a book is that the audience is always going to notice things or, you know, kind of like dig, you know, into certain things and kind of find their, their own author's voice within that book. so it's interesting to see a lot of the times now with um different authors how those connections are made and it's just like okay well this is it's it's like you start to wonder it's like well is this what the the author was trying to say here you know they're using things as far as like a metaphor and it's just like oh they have a, a really good message here and then like you have some other people who are like, no, well, they're actually like saying this. And then we got to like try and figure out, you know, there, there's always some kind of weird semantics to it. Well, we, we really get to the core of um, of writing in, in that perspective, because you, uh, you should, you, an author will have a voice in terms of a style um, and a, a way of writing. Like, you know, a Stephen King book, when you're reading a Stephen King book, <clears throat> he has his particular sort of this particular style of stuff, but it's important to separate the author from the work as much as you can. But if if the book is well-written, that will happen naturally. Um, and, you know, if, uh, if you have an incredibly racist character, doesn't mean you have a racist author. It means you have an author who's exploring the concept of racist people in this particular character. Um, and if it's well written, it won't be harmful to people who are reading it, while at the same time, it will still be addressing the fact that there are racists in the world or sexists or whatever else, you know. Um, and so I think it's a, a lot of the time, a, a good writer will be able to address these things where you get to explore those things through the story and through the characters. You don't hear the author's sort of preaching voice in the background while it's happening. You're just aware of what happening within the story through the actions and dialogue of characters so that that's well written at the point where you feel like the author's views are coming through the characters then that's where something becomes poorly written because that that's the you know that's the sort of the author intruding past the story which you shouldn't see all the time you're reading a short story ideally you want to be unaware of the fact that you're reading a story you want to be unaware of the fact that someone wrote it you should just be sort of immersed in the story that's what i think we're always aiming for when we're telling a story and we've got a page turner that's going on and then if something jacks you out of it it's kind of infuriating when the story's been good and i think that's when things get really important that even if you are an author who is trying to convey some principle or some message or something through the story that you're telling trust the story to do it don't try to hammer it home because then people will notice as soon as they notice you've lost them so yeah i think that's one of the real skills in storytelling is is trusting the intelligence of readers and letting the story convey itself you know yeah it's a it's a tough thing to do but again like all of it as craft develops hopefully you get better at doing it yeah so so like with craft and then you know, just letting the story develop and keeping the audience engaged in a way that they're not going to be like, oh, like, wait a second, like, that doesn't make sense kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, so there's different skill sets uh, that a lot of people will say that, you know, like, if you're writing short stories versus a novella versus a novel, 
a lot of people say that there's different skills that you need for each one. What would you say as far as, so what is, what would be like the biggest change as far as maybe focus or direction on a short story versus a novella versus a novel? Focus is really the key, is really the key point. When you're writing a novel, you want to stay, you want to stay sort of focused on the on the main thread going through of fundamentally what the novel's about. But you've got a lot of room either side to explore characters, to explore subplots, to bring things in and fade them out again during the course of, you know, the process of what's being what's being written. Right. With with a short story, it is a really tightly focused lens. You have to just laser in on on the point. Um, and the, the basic sort of principle with short story um, is, is you get in after it started and you get out before it's finished. Um, and a lot of the time, the fundamental problem with short stories is that they start too soon or they finish too late. Um, and a lot of the time, if I'm helping like with mentorships and editing, more often than anything else, particularly, it happens with all writing with novels too, but particularly in short stories, you can almost always go, right, this first two pages, fuck them off. You don't need them. Anything in there that is really relevant, you can drop a few bits later on, no problem. The story starts here, not back here. Um, and that's fundamental to good storytelling, um, particularly in the short form. And it's something I really had to, to learn. I started writing more seriously with a lot longer form. Um, and I, but I have long been a fan of short stories since I was like 12 years old and discovered Roald Dahl's short stories for adults, talking of Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and stuff like that, Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected and those weird, twisty, creepy stories that he wrote. Um, I really had to sort of educate myself and I did a lot of courses and, you know, did a lot of training, talked to people, read a lot of stories and, and sort of figured out that, that sort of skill set that's required to write a short story to have that really tightly focused lens um and to to get in right in the action to not say too much to not tell too much to let this let the you know trust your reader to to stay with you and then bang get out at the first opportunity almost you know without feeling you've got to tie everything up and you've got to follow these threads through it's and then the novella is something that tends to fall sort of halfway between the two, like literally in size, but also sort of in craft in as much as with a novella, you need to be tightly focused on the story that you're telling, but you do have a little bit of space to do a little bit of subplot, a little bit of deeper character development that you might not have a chance to do otherwise. And honestly, I think that's why I'm such a fan of the novella, particularly in horror. I think it's a great length for horror because it allows you, because maintaining horror across the length of a novel can be difficult and you have a lot of sort of highs and lows it's obviously it's something that is you do it's something that i do but often maintaining the tension when you're when you when you're writing a horror story maintaining the tension is better when it's shorter um but when you have when you push out to that novella length you do get to have a little bit more in terms of character development a little bit more space to move while still maintaining a level of tension through the course of that story so yeah, and and I often I don't know <laughs> when I start. Usually, I, I'm aware of the fact this is a novel, this is a short story. With the Eli Carver books, there there's three of those now. They're all 
um, novellas out through Grey Matter Press, and they're all about thirty-five or forty thousand word novellas. So they're real. They're really in the in that middle zone, that short novel zone, right before you kind of get into technically a novel. Um, but the first one of those with, with Manifest Recall, when I sat down to write that, I was writing a short story. I had this idea for a short story and I started writing it. And then as I got into it, even you know, within the first few thousand words, I was like, oh shit, hang on. This is, this is uh, I've just realized this is a far bigger story. I, I think this actually is a novel that I'm writing. And I kept going, got to about 30,000 words. I was like, all oh, right, okay, this is a novella. And it kind of wrapped up at about like 38,000 words or something. Um, so that was a weird one, the way it kind of revealed itself to me as it goes. Usually I do have a better idea whether something's short or novella or going to be actual full length novel. So, but they, yeah, they're different skill sets, definitely. Yeah, I think that's one of the, so one of the things that I, I definitely have a hard time with, um, and I, I think I'll, most people will probably have a hard time with, and for the reasons that, you know, as far as exploration and being able to have that wiggle room, the short stories are definitely one of those things. I feel like if somebody, if somebody can start writing short stories and put out a, a, a couple of short stories, maybe not even published, but just write some first drafts and get like the whole thing together so it's cohesive and, and it works I feel like writing the short stories kind of helps people with that laser focus and be like, okay, even when you get to the novella or when you get to the novel, you at least have that long-term sight, you know, this is the start point and this is the end. And that's kind of the, the elongating that short story, that idea that you just had. And then everything else is kind of, you know, interweaving in between. And then you start to figure yeah. out, okay, well, how much like how much playroom do I want to have or how much playroom do I have I think the better I've got at writing short stories definitely the better I've got at writing novels as well um that short stories will definitely will teach you a lot about the brevity of language about saying what you want without blathering you know without repetition uh, focusing get, getting your points across sort of well and and clearly um, and then that extrapolates out into the into the novel length. Um, and I often find people who tend to write at novel length all the time and they they really want to write short stories. The the short stories they write are just so overwritten. They're like, oh, God, this thing, you know, I really wanted this to be a short story, but it's nearly 20,000 words and I just can't cut any more out of it. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> let me have it. Um, and, you know, I'll give it back to them at 5,000 words and go, there's your story. Um, and I'm not changing anything. I'm just literally chopping out chunks, chopping out chunks or, or marking like three paragraphs and say, this needs to be one line. Everything you've said in these paragraphs, you can say in one line. So rewrite, you know, that to this. Um, and, and that's the thing. If you if you do want to write short stories, that's kind of the skill set that you need to develop. Um, and once people do start doing that, it feeds back into everything that we write and it makes everything kind of better because I've got a, a very old, it's in the drawer over there. One where the, in fact, Bound, it was the it was the first, the first draft of the first version of Bound that I wrote. And a very good friend of mine um, who unfortunately died way too young, had uh, liver cancer. Um, but his name is Paul Haynes. He's an absolutely outstanding Australian writer. If you find his writing, it, I can't recommend it highly enough, particularly a novella he wrote called Wives, which is just one of the best things ever written um 
and he, he and I were good friends. And when I when I wrote the first draft of what eventually became Bound, um, he was by that point already starting to get a bit too sick and didn't want to sit at the computer for too long. But he wanted to read it. He wanted to give me some feedback on it. And he said, print it out. And I'll because I spend a lot of time lying on the couch when I've had chemo. And he said, I'll sit and I'll go through it. Um, and it's sort of a treasured possession now because it's got all of his notes for obvious reasons, you know, since he died and everything else. But it's also because it was so informative to me as a young writer back then um, and all these notes on it. And one of the things that stands out um, is in the early few chapters, he's sort of point like little arrows to a few lines and said, you don't need to say all of this kind of thing. And then by the time we're halfway through the book or towards the end of the book, it's just big capital letters in the margin saying, for fuck's sake, Al, pick one. <laughs> and, you know, because I've said this, 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 this. And he was getting infuriated. He said, choose one. You don't have to have three versions of... And it was really informative to me about how to really draw what you want to say. And it's like, if you can only have one of them, yeah. you've got to pick the one that really counts. And then you convey the idea very well. And if you do that repeatedly through a manuscript, then your focus, whether it's a novel length like that was or a short story, your focus is tight. And then, yeah, yeah, it, it's important stuff. And yeah, and that's what I started learning way back then, thanks to Paul, yeah. And I noticed that in some of the, the writing that I've read from you so far as, as well is the amount of vocabulary that you use. You're very specific a lot of the times about your diction and how you frame things. And I get a lot of the sense of um, the way that you describe scenes when you're walking in. It's not a lot of the time. It's really not like uh, when you read some stuff and it's you describe one thing they're looking at the scene keeps going and then they describe another part of the room you know it's like you, you walk in and because because nobody does that right you're not going to walk into a room or you know say you go grocery shopping you're not going to walk into you know let's say like the the grocery stores like it's like the matrix you know when you're sitting there and it's a blank room you know so you walk into this grocery store it's a blank room there's no description yet. And then they just, they look off to their left and then, oh, there's a guy working with seafood and that's like the only description you get. And then you walk over there and then, you know, <laughs> you're having that conversation and then you look somewhere else and you get this description of something that you would have already known about if you're walking over there. So just uh -huh. the, it's, it's interesting reading your writing the way that you, you, put that lens on there where it's like okay we're walking into a room we get a sense of the room these are the things that are important to this character so you get the you, you get the introduction you get the setting and then you know you get the action and the dialogue i think it's it's kind of a hard thing it, to do it is it is i think it's important too a lot of i think a lot of the problem often as you just described or the opposite where you're just sitting there going oh come on because there's this long ongoing there's this and that and this and that you know like i'm a big fan of george martin and game of thrones but that man can spend three pages describing the sigil on a fucking shield it's <laughs> it, it becomes for me it's like good description for me is like it's a tapestry but we don't have to describe the whole tapestry we put six nails in the wall and the reader hangs a tapestry on it um 
And it's about hitting those nails in the right place that gives that reader the sense. Because one of the, re one of the reasons that we read, apart from the fact that we want to be entertained and we want to be told a good story, is one of the reasons we read is that we want to exercise our imagination. So if you describe a scene in painstaking detail, then it's kind of boring to read and everybody has the same picture. Whereas if you give people a few key elements that will shape, that are enough to shape the story, but you let them fill in the gaps and they get to explore their own imagination. They get to, they get to exercise their imagination and they have a better experience then because they feel it, oh, I can see this place. And it's almost contradictory. It's like, well, the reason you can see it is because I didn't tell you much about it. And the brain doesn't like blank spaces. And so if you give a few little hooks, the reader's mind will fill in all the gaps. If you only give one hook, then it's like you described. They, they focus on this one thing, they don't know the rest, and then suddenly it becomes revealed and it's disjointed. You give too much and they don't get to bring themselves to it. And, and it is, as you say, it's difficult. It, it is a talent that takes a long time to sort of develop and I'm constantly trying to sort of improve on it. But I think that it's really important to just just give a few key elements that give you enough to have the whole picture and that is going to be relevant to the story, but leaving all that space for the reader's imagination then to just, just fill it up and, and they'll have a picture in their mind. And if you could take a photograph of a reader's mind, if you had five different people reading the same passage and you could photograph what was in their mind at any given point, there would be five very different photographs just with a handful of elements that were the same. And that's ideal. That's what, that's kind of what you want from reading. And in terms of vocabulary, what you mentioned, I think that's important as well is to not, you don't need loads of words or fancy words. It's nice to drop those $5 words every once in a while, you know, to, to make something interesting. But there was another group that I'm sort of involved with here is there's a, the Canberra speculative fiction Writers Guild. It's the CSFG, um, which is based in Canberra, and I'm a couple of hours away, so I'm sort of an honorary satellite member in a way. Mm -hmm. But one of the guys there, they were having, they were discussing the nature of writing and, and use of words and stuff. And this guy had this piece of software, and he ran the books of a few members through the software, and it worked out how many words they'd used, not the total number of words, but how many different words. Oh, cool. um, so, so it was a really interesting exercise to see use of language. Um, and one of the members of the CSFG is Karen Warren, who is just an absolutely outstanding writer. She's, I mean, she's by far one of Australia's best horror writers. She's, she's got a separate room in her house for all the awards that she's, or she should have, for all the awards that she's won. Uh, but she's also well-recognised around the world. She frequently gets included by Ellen Datlow in different anthologies and things like that. She's an absolutely outstanding writer. And the really interesting thing was that of all the people whose books got run through this software, Karen's book came up with the least number of words in total of vocabulary. So she says all this stuff and tells a brilliant story with fewer words than all the other writers. All the other writers were using multiple different versions of words or whatever. And it's Karen's ability to use less to create more that makes her such an outstanding writer. And it was, it was a really interesting sort of exercise to go through. And I was pleased to see that, yeah, that it was, you know, Karen used the least variety of words and yet her work is you know better than all of us so yeah is that something that since then have you gone back and like looked at some of your work and kind of 
Uh, I, I, the guy is the, the Ian McHugh is the guy that had it, and um, he's the guy with the software. And I keep thinking about it. I should send him some manuscripts and hey, sling these through and see how they are because I, I haven't had it done with my work, but I have, I, I have very much remembered that process, um, and it's important to me to make sure that there's not a lot of repetition because repetition in a book really is uncomfortable to read. But equally, you don't get away with repetition by using a thesaurus to constantly find a different word to say the same thing. Right. If you find yourself using the same word a lot, you need to get rid of that. Mm -hmm. But you're also saying the same thing a lot. Mm -hmm. So if you change above to a top so that you don't have repetition of above in two paragraphs, you still have repetition of that thing, that word, that meaning in the two paragraphs. And often... Sometimes you just need to change the word because you need to convey that thing. But a lot of the time you need to take one of them out because you're repeating not just the word, but you're repeating what you're telling people. Yeah. And then that starts to really tighten up the prose of what you're trying to say. And it flows a lot more smoothly and people get what they need. You don't like, like Haynes scrawling in my margins, fuck's sake, I'll pick one. <laughs> it's like, you just, you just, you don't need to keep saying the same thing. So, yeah. yeah. So, with with that kind of idea in your head right where you you don't want to keep saying the same thing over and over in your writing uh is there uh is is there is there like a certain way that you started forming the way that you write versus when you began that you've noticed kind of improves on how you tell your stories and how you craft your stories or is it more kind of just focusing on the same elements but just telling it in a different way for each book if that makes sense yeah i know i know what you're getting at um it, it's hard to say for sure um definitely just the idea of generally improving craft generally improves the way you tell stories across the board um Paul Haynes very much um, taught me a lot, an early influence. And another person I've worked, another friend of mine is Angela Slater, um, who did some great work critiquing um, a lot of my earlier stuff um, as well. Um, those guys in particular, those two, there's lots of other people too. There's, a, there's several of us that sort of read for each other and help each other out where we can now. But particularly in the early days, Haynes and Angela Slater were both really instrumental in helping me to figure out those basic principles of okay prose to good prose you know of what to look out for in terms of repetition and structure and and grammar and all these different things that they would pick up in early manuscripts that taught me an awful lot um and then i think that process then just constantly feeds back into everything that you write and and like I said you know I find now that my first drafts are a lot cleaner now than they ever used to be and a lot of that is because a first draft now will be like a third draft after it had been through Haynes and Angela Slater back in the day you know I do that automatically now and I kind of land closer to the end because I'm just I've just done it a lot more I'm more used to doing it and I make fewer mistakes in the first draft now than I used to I think when you're when you're editing how is how is that different from when you're editing your own stuff and somebody else's material and 
how what like what kind of advice would you give to somebody that is that is going to be putting something out for editing yeah so the the first and most basic rule is you you cannot edit your own work you can up to a point but you can't be the only editor of your own work um you will you will absolutely miss things um uh, because even subconsciously several months later you know the story because you wrote it you, your brain knows what to expect it remembers sort of what's happening whereas somebody who's coming to a completed manuscript um with no idea what's happening and has they're coming into it cold will have an absolutely different perspective on it from a grammar and typo point of view right through to a structural and storytelling point of view um so and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to pay the big money for professional editors i mean depends how you're going about the work that you're doing and how much you've got to invest or obviously if you're going with publishers then that's the publisher's job that like they, they have editors to do that which is one of the best reasons to go with a publisher because uh, I, ideally you'll get well edited when when you do um but you do need this is why it's good to have a group of friends of a similar sort of peer group level and you can read for each other because you can do that that cold reading editing critique stuff for each other and that and that's really useful if you've got if there's two of you and you're both writing novels it's a big commitment to ask someone to read and critique a novel for you but if they've written a novel and they want you to critique theirs then sweet switch them over be honest with each other and you start you know you, you build up this useful network of people um so that's absolutely worth you know it's kind of essential i think and then if you are doing stuff indie it is good to pay an editor um if you can or to find ways to deal with that because it is really important to have well edited work but prior to that on a sort of self-editing level um one of the tricks that has worked for me surprisingly well and i can't even remember who it was that gave me this tip years and years ago um but when i get to the end basically when i'm writing a basic process is i'll write a first draft when I get to the end of the first draft, I'll immediately go back to the beginning, even in the same day of writing potentially, and go through again and do a second draft. Because in the process of writing the first draft, I'll have made lots of notes. Oh, I've got to remember this. Oh, that happened. Oh, I need to do that. And a lot of the time I'll write these notes and add these things, which I will then, at the end of the first draft, I'll go straight back and go through the whole thing again and put those bits and pieces in. Um, and then I'll put it away for a little while. That's as after that second run through is when I'll put it away. I'll work on other things because I know that I'm going to come back to that in a couple of weeks or a month or two months or whatever to do the next draft. When I subsequently come back and do that next draft, the first thing I do is change the font size because I, I write in times 12. And when I come back to do the not, you know, the, sec the second draft sometime later, I change it up to 0.14 um, because all the words shift on the page mm -hmm. at a subconscious mm -hmm. level your brain remembers the pattern of what you wrote. And when you change the font size and all the words move around, it looks different to your brain and you spot things that you wouldn't have spotted before. You spot repetitions or run on sentences or typos and all that sort of stuff. So for me, literally the, the, simple, the simplest act of just putting the font size up two points when you go through the second draft is one of the best self-editing tools I've ever come across. Um, and when it comes to dialogue, read it aloud. 
as you're when you're going through read just sit there like an idiot at your desk and read the dialogue aloud because it will sound good to your ear if it's good dialogue and it will be really obvious if it's bad dialogue because you're saying oh god that sounds terrible and that's because it's bad dialogue it's like okay figure out a way to rewrite that and then when you read it aloud and it sounds sounds better it sounds right you know so yeah that, those are my those are my key tools to for self-editing awesome well ladies and gentlemen this is the episode with Alan Baxter. Once again, thanks for coming on. Um, as we're in our thanks closing well. here, is there anything uh, coming up or anything that you want to plug real quick just to let everybody know kind of what you're doing? Um, well, the gulp is out now. Ooh, there it is. Uh, and the fall is out April 12th. So um, that's that's kind of what I'm focusing on at the moment. And those two books together, as I said before, they make kind of a mosaic novel across 10 novellas in two volumes. And so um that yeah that's that's what i'm promoting at the moment and the 30 like harbor book just came out so that's a trilogy now and that also has something of a complete arc off the back of those stories so if you're keen to check something out then yeah go go for the gulp or the eli carver books and otherwise i'm just at alanbaxter.com.au uh, and you can find out all about me and my stuff there oh yeah man well thank you for so much for coming on no worries thanks for having me thanks for listening to this episode of the generic podcast if you like what you heard, please consider reviewing the show and giving it a follow. Episodes are weekly, so you can expect new episodes every Wednesday. The show is currently available on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public, and Anchor. And soon will be on several others as well. I'm so grateful that Alan Baxter had some time to hop on the show. And he's a fountain of knowledge when it comes to literature. Hopefully, you've learned something new about writing and can now add that knowledge to your toolbox. Make sure to check in next week when we have horror author Steve Stred will be on the show discussing more topics concerning horror and horror literature. That's all for now, and I hope the rest of your week goes well. Hopefully, y'all come back again next week for another episode of the Generic Podcast, where we talk about everything horror, sci-fi, and sometimes fantasy. Until then, keep being the amazing people y'all are. <laughs>